This morning we're talking about Joshua building a team, a partnership in this message moving forward together. There's a verse in the New Testament, a couple of verses that St. Paul speaks to this very issue. He, talk, he says, every time I think of you, I give thanks to my God. Whenever I pray, I make my requests for all of you with joy, for you have been my partners in spreading the good news about Christ from the time you first heard it until now. So we're going to talk today about partnership, building a team. When I was growing up, the neighborhood kids used to gather in a field beside our house to play baseball. It always started with the best two players choosing sides. You know how the drill goes. You know uh, one player makes his selection and then the other and back and forth it went until all were chosen and the teams were formed. This same process uh, has lived out in uh, gym classes and other things throughout our, our lifetime, isn't it? During those years, I learned something about picking teams, and that is that selections weren't always made on athletic performance. Often there were politics involved. You know, one kid was a favorite pick because his parents owned a pool that a lot of the kids would hang out at later. Another would get picked early on because his parent was an important member of the community or whatever. Outside factors sometimes affected who made the team and who didn't or in what order. Despite that fact, I remain convinced that the greatest accomplishments for the kingdom of God are always going to be team efforts. Making a God-given vision a reality is rarely something that happens alone. While individual efforts in some things are admirable, God has placed us together in the body of Christ for a reason. And we can't function without each other. We work best as a team. Joshua has come to understand that one chapter of Israel's history is now closing and God has chosen to do a new work through him. He has glimpsed the promised land that God is determined to give to his people. He has been challenged by God himself to be strong, to be courageous. We talked about this last week. Now it's time to develop a team of people who will initiate uh, God's plan for his people. A closer look reveals that Joshua understood the critical dimensions of team recruitment. And he also understood how indispensable the issue of promise was to the team that would uh, initiate this new movement of God. Experience tells us that God reveals his promises and plans in different ways to us. For some, it's through meditation in God's word and prayer that there's a sense of hearing from God. Not an audible voice, but an internal conviction that helps us to sense where God is leading us. And this is how Joshua received his direction from God, just as Moses had in many cases. At other times, God reveals his plans through another person. And this is often a lot, uh, how a lot of us come to be part of a movement of God. A leader like Joshua senses a direction from God and shares that direction with other people. And then those people must determine if they believe the vision and decide whether they want to be a part of it. So I want to look together for a few moments this morning at the process by which a leader shares their vision and people around them determine whether they're going to respond to that. The first part of the process that we learn through this story in Joshua is waiting. Joshua orders the officers to go through the camp to tell the people that three days from now, you're going to cross the Jordan River and enter the land that God has promised. Why three days? 
Well, there may be some practical explanations. Maybe that's the time required for them to pack up the camp and get moving. You know, perhaps it was allowing time for the spies that Joshua had sent out to come back and complete their mission. But I think it, that maybe he just needed to give the people some time to get used to the idea. You know, it's this waiting period. Their leader has told them that he believes God is leading them to, to move ahead and to conquer this new land. Now it's time for the reality of what lies ahead to sink in. It's a time for them to decide whether they're going to own the vision, whether they're going to be part of it. It's time to weigh the cost and test their willingness to pay the price in order to have God's very best. I found this principle of waiting to be helpful when recruiting leaders. You know, most of the time I try to give people an opportunity to prayerfully consider their decision and their involvement and then get back to them in a few days. It's important for us to wait on God in prayer. Joshua announced confidently where God was leading them. And I'm sure there were some people who wondered if he'd really heard from God or maybe just had a weird dream. Maybe there were some people who left the camp, who packed up and, and left because they didn't want to cross the Jordan River. But the majority, it seems, concluded that this was a mission from God and they wanted to be part of it. It was not just a promise given to Joshua. It had been a promise given to them as well. And this was the land that God was giving them for their very own. I remember when we built this part of our building here in 1993-94, during the planning process, going into debt, $1.2 million, seemed way beyond what most of us could even imagine, especially for a congregation that then was less than about 300 people. And I remember a couple of families who, instead of supporting the decision to go forward, as most uh, folks did, decided to leave and to go worship elsewhere because they didn't agree with the direction that we sensed God was leading us, and they chose not to support where we were going. And that was painful for me. But I had to focus on the majority for whom God deepened their conviction about our future, and they became part of uh, his plan and made this vision a reality that we know today. You see, when you share your vision with people, you have to give them time to adjust. It isn't lost time. It may be the most valuable investment of time that you'll ever make. Waiting is hard, but believing while waiting is harder still and often necessary uh, for God to do his work in that time. The second part of the process is communicating. Joshua uh, also ordered his uh, leaders to go through the camp and communicate the, God's promises to the people. Go through the camp and tell the people, he said, what they need to do in order to prepare to receive God's promised land. This process of communication is probably the most efficient way to spread the word about what's happening, but it also serves to broaden the leadership base. And that was true for Joshua. Most importantly, every time leaders communicate what God's going to do, they come to own it. People come to own it and understand that plan a little better. Because why? We learn as we listen. But as any teacher knows, we also learn by passing on to others what we've heard, what we've read. It's a wise leader who invites others to be part of that communication process. The Apostle Paul knew that when he wrote to his younger co-worker in the faith, Timothy. He said, you have heard me teach things that have been confirmed by many reliable witnesses. Now teach. 
these truths to other trustworthy people who will be able to pass them on to others. Now notice the movement of that communication from Paul to Timothy to reliable leaders to other people. It's the means by which God spreads his truth. It also is the means by which God shares his vision. Joshua's leaders share in God's promises as they communicate them to other people, and maybe that's why the Bible identifies one of the qualifications of a leader as the ability to teach. And in, in the spiritual gift of teaching is not just the ability to stand up in front of a class and give a lecture, it's the ability to pass on to others God's word and God's work. Third part of the process is participation. Joshua orders these leaders to go spread the word. The people are given the task of getting the supplies ready so that they can move out. Everyone has a, has a job to do. Everyone is participating in some way. Everyone's making a contribution to this new movement of God. And people, people need to work through change. And Joshua is giving them something to work on. The successful completion of numerous small tasks will culminate in being poised to share in the larger task of receiving God's promise. Joshua, turns out, is an excellent delegator. And that's important for two reasons. First, it keeps him from spreading himself too thin and being too scattered. And secondly, it gives the people of God that he's leading a sense of involvement in what God's doing. Good delegation lets people feel a little more in control of their circumstances and, their, and the events. And it builds their sense of belonging and participation and their commitment to carrying out change. Can you imagine Joshua trying to pack up this camp all by himself? Thousands of people, he would work himself to the point of exhaustion and the people would be standing around with nothing to do. So the more time that passed with people standing around idle, the greater the likelihood that complaining would begin. Maybe Joshua learned the importance of delegation from his mentor, Moses. See, Moses was this do-it-yourselfer kind of guy who was confronted one day by his father-in-law, Jethro. And after watching Moses' attempts to handle every situation that rose among the Israelites, Jethro speaks to Moses. And he says, what are you really trying to accomplish here? Why are you trying to do this all alone while everyone stands around you from morning till evening? Moses replied, because the people come to me to get a ruling from God. And when a dispute arises, they come to me. And I'm the one who settles the case between the quarreling parties. I inform the people of God's decrees and give them his instructions. And I love Jethro's response. This is not good. <laughs> this is not good, Moses. You're going to wear yourself out, and the people too. This job is too heavy a burden for you to handle all by yourself. You see, Moses was worn out. And the people were exhausted and frustrated because Moses could only be in one place at one time. And yet, this is the way that many of us operate as leaders. It's the way many churches operate. I know so many churches where the pastor's trying to do it all while people watch from the sidelines. And then they complain because the pastor's not readily available to them. Or a few leaders in the church are exhausted because they're tackling every task, great and small, and that sets this atmosphere is conducive for burnout for the few and rust out for the rest of them. Creating an environment of shared ownership of the vision and shared leadership in the task 
involves people in the opportunity, gives them the opportunity to contribute. Not everyone will be a leader who can go out and spread the word. Some are gifted in helping to get things accomplished, but getting a job done carries its own sense of reward. Achieving a task, especially a tough one, warms the heart, feeds the spirit, and it breeds commitment. Years ago, I came across a formula uh, that says dissatisfaction with the way things are and a vision for how they can be and yet and some first steps to make that vision a reality must be greater than the natural resistance that people have to change. Now let me say that again. Dissatisfaction with the way things are, a vision for what they could be, and some first steps to make that vision a reality, those three things together have to be greater than the natural resistance of people to change. And if any of those three components are missing, people will resist change. Joshua helps them to overcome the resistance to change and become part of the movement of God by giving them some practical, attainable steps to get them involved in doing what uh, God's calling them to do. And I think we can learn from him. Joshua is careful not to build this movement around himself or the promises that he can make them. He leads people to share in the promises of God. In three days, he says, you're going to cross the Jordan River and take possession of the land the Lord your God is giving you. To make it perfectly clear, he repeats that twice in identical, nearly identical words because he's building the team that's going to share in the promise of God. Here's the next part of the process. A team of people, uh, you need to build a team of people that keeps its promises. Joshua next turns his attention to another problem that has surfaced involving two of the tribes of Israel. There's 12 tribes of Israel in all. Ten are on board, ready to go, cross the Jordan River. There's two that are wanting to hang back because years before this, they have made a special arrangement with Moses. And these tribes decided they really wanted to settle on the east side of the Jordan River because they felt the land was suitable for their large herds and flocks. Moses felt that uh, that would really divide the people of Israel and make it impossible for them to conquer this promised land if they weren't all united. But these folks said, you know, they swore to Moses that when, when, when times got tough, they would leave their families and their flocks, they would cross the Jordan River, and they would help the other ten tribes uh, to claim their inheritance and then return home. Moses finally bought it. He agreed to this plan. But now Joshua comes around talking to them and reminding them of the promises that they made. They could have offered some excuses that are pretty uh, common in today's society. They could have said, you know what, uh, Joshua, so much time has passed. Things have changed since we made that deal with Moses. You know, our herds have grown, our families have changed, we've, we have all that we want right here. We've got our land. We don't really want to go fight with you. We don't need to cross over the Jordan River. There are too many sacrifices that that would entail. Uh, we'll miss time with our families. We'll miss time taking care of our, our flocks and herds. Uh, and, and most of all, we'll risk our own lives in battle. I think we're just going to stay here. Today, some of those same kind of excuses sound a little like, you know, I don't need to keep my promise to the company. I got my bonus. I got what I wanted. I don't feel obligated to them anymore. 
I don't count on having to, I didn't count on having to sacrifice to be a member of the church. I changed my mind about wanting to be involved. I firmly believe that God builds his church through people who keep their promises. If Joshua is going to share the vision with these people, he wants to know that they are people he can count on. He wants to fight the coming battle side by side with people who will keep their word, not those who will exit at the first sign of difficulty. One note of caution. We've all been disappointed by people who don't keep their word, haven't we? It can be disillusioning to discover the person that you thought was a spiritual giant is no more than a hypocrite. But don't let your disappointment with one person taint your perspective of all people. God's movements are built on trust, and trust involves risk, the risk that someone will disappoint you along the way. Many people have concluded that they will never trust again, so they hide their hearts and their vision behind walls that they build to protect themselves. Joshua has experienced some of those disappointments. Remember, after he, he was on an earlier spy mission commissioned by Moses with people he thought he could trust to come back and, and support the uh, unanimous decision to move ahead. He knows what it's like to have people reject his perspective because he ended up being in a minority position in a, in a decision that would dramatically affect the, the future of God's people. And yet he continues to seek out people who would keep their promises. And it's worth noting that both Joshua and Moses realized that it would take every fighting man in Israel to claim the land that God was about to give them. Their vision was big enough to claim uh, this land, and it was going to take a majority, uh, and a majority of the people would not, uh, would not be able to do it. It would require the whole team. The body of Christ needs everybody functioning properly together to do what God's called us to do. A church cannot afford the luxury of spectators. We need everyone's prayers. We need everyone's spiritual gifts. We need everyone's presence. We need everyone's financial stewardship to make it work. And if the day comes when our vision has shrunk to the point that we don't need everybody, it's time that we pray for God to enlarge our vision. The final two verses of Joshua 1 is a declaration of allegiance. The men of Israel promise to follow Joshua until the victory is completely won, and if anyone fails to keep that promise, the penalty they set is death. The penalty is death. That's a strong promise. Imagine signing a contract for a loan, and you start falling behind in your payments, and the result is not the usual you know, added interest, but the threat of death. You might think twice before defaulting on that loan, wouldn't you? Now, I'm not suggesting that the Israelites' pledge of obedience unto death should provide a pattern for us in all the promises that we make. It does, however, strongly tell us that their commitment to doing whatever it takes, doing whatever it takes to, hold the, to lay hold of the future vision that God has given them um, is, is what they're willing to do. It also gives evidence of their willingness to submit to Joshua's authority and to his leadership. In the book, In the Making of a Leader, there's a statement that says leaders who have trouble submitting to authority will usually have trouble exercising authority, especially spiritual authority. See, many people are attracted to leadership because they think there's a power, there's prestige there. 
But this attraction is often based on a proud spirit, and the Bible is constantly in opposition to a proud spirit. James 4, 6 says, God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. Spiritual authority doesn't come by grabbing power, but through a willingness to be a servant. And servanthood begins as we submit ourselves to God. Spiritual authority is built on a foundation of humility and a willingness to follow wherever God leads. Their Pledge of Allegiance included more than a commitment to follow. It contained words of encouragement. And those words were, be strong, Joshua. Be courageous. Those words were first given to Joshua by his mentor, Moses. They were communicated directly from God. And now they're coming from the people themselves, encouraging Joshua's leadership. Be strong and be courageous. You would think that Joshua would certainly be getting that message by now, wouldn't you? Sometimes leaders, though, are surprised by a wide variety of reactions to people to their vision. Some naively assume that if a vision is from God, the people are going to hear it and present themselves positively and, 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 and go along with everything. And over the years, I've noticed that there are five different types of people who respond to a leader's vision. First type I call refreshers. These are people who inspire you to dream great dreams and attempt great things for God. They encourage you and they invest themselves to the extent that they inspire and reach and, and want you to reach higher than you might otherwise reach. The refreshers. Then there's the refiners. These are people that help you to sharpen and clarify your vision. And this may be through constructive criticism. It may be through their ability to ask the right questions. But they're eager to receive the vision. The third group is the reflectors. These are people who simply reflect your vision and your energy. They don't create any energy all by themselves, and neither do they detract from the momentum of the vision. These are agreeable people. They're pleasant to be around. They're faithful people. And then there's the reducers. These folks try to reduce your vision to their comfort level. They resist change that they find undesirable and makes them uncomfortable. And then the fifth group is the rejectors. These are people who will never, ever adopt your vision. They will either leave or they'll stay and drag their feet in an attempt to frustrate you until you leave. These are people who drain momentum. They drain enthusiasm. And after nearly 40 years of ministry, I've come to some conclusions about folks in all five of these groups. Somehow God uses all five of these groups of people to clarify and communicate a vision for the present and the future. The first two groups are busy and productive people. And if you want their input, you have to usually go seek it out. Often it's the most negative people who are strongly motivated to make their feelings known to you. That's why leaders spend most of their time and energy dealing with negative people. And in churches, often church boards get little done because they're responding to problems that negative people create. That's in other churches. That's never happened here, ever. <laughs> and when you're drained of energy, when you're drained of energy, it's easiest to spend your time with the middle group, the reflectors, because they're faithful, they're supportive, they're pleasant to be around. The downside is that spending all your time with this group is going to always lead to mediocrity because they're never going to ask the hard questions. They're never going to challenge you to do more. 
we need to remember that the initial response to substantive change for most of us is usually resistance, isn't it? Giving people time to process change is vitally important. Sometimes an early reducer or rejecter will become a strong supporter given time. But recruiting a team is hard work, and yet it's necessary uh, to the work of a successful leader. A church's potential is directly related to its leadership team. As a church grows, so, much each, so must each member of its staff and its leadership team be growing. Constantly equipping, enlarging, and upgrading a team of leaders is an, is an indispensable dimension to a movement of God. Joshua could never have done what God was calling him to do alone, and neither can we. And I believe that there's going to be some things, some next things here at Redeemer uh, that God has in store for us. I'm not sure what all they'll be, but I know that God has been moving us in a direction to look at another building addition to um, provide some of the space needs that we need, especially for classroom space. I know that God has been leading our uh, and pushing and, and mo moving us in the direction of maybe the idea that um, ministry won't always happen just on this site, but maybe another site as well. But whatever it is, whatever God has next for us, I am convinced of this, that we must be working together to make it happen. And God is building the team through people like you and me. Let's pray. Father, we know that we worship a God of promise whose saving grace brought a people from captivity into a land that provided for them in this same God still leads us from places of captivity into a life of peace and forgiveness and hope. Your promises endure forever, and God, we believe your promises will be fulfilled. So teach us how to work together with you so that your will shall be done on this earth as it is in heaven. And we pray it in Jesus' name.